0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm uh, Madawi Al Rashid. I'm um, professor of social anthropology. I come from King's College, just across the road, and I'm honoured to chair this session. Um, we have, we welcome your uh, presence here and amongst us, Professor Leila Ahmed, um, and. Um, I would like to welcome you to uh, this event organised by the uh, LSC Middle East Centre. And uh, the Middle East Centre has already established uh, a, very, a series of lively lectures and programme at LSC that is open to the public. So uh, the centre warmly invites you to attend. And if you want further details, you can access their website on the LSC uh, main uh, page. Um, this uh, lecture by uh, Professor Ahmed will start soon, but let me give you a brief biography of her. I know she doesn't really need any introduction. Uh, Professor Ahmed is uh, the author of uh, a seminal book, a woman and Gender in Islam, which was published in 1992. And in that book, she really uh, opened the ground for a new approach to understanding gender in Muslim societies. And I remember reading that book in 1992, and uh, her main argument at the time, I remember, was that uh, the veil was pre-Islamic, and it was very much determined by class, if, I'm, if, if my memory doesn't fail me. But um, um, we will listen to her uh, new um, um, talk today about a new book. Professor Ahmed was appointed as the first professor of women's uh, studies in religion at Harvard Divinity School and is now the Victor Thomas Professor of Divinity. She's the recipient of many fellowships, among them a National Humanities Center Fellowship, a fellowship at Radcliffe Bunting Institute, the Distinguished Faculty Award of the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, and a Fellowship at Cambridge University's Clare Hall. Her new book, uh, A Quiet Revolution, The Veil's Resurgence from the Middle East to America, was published this month by Yale University Press and is now on sale um, Uh, tonight and uh, Professor Ahmed is happy to sign copies for um, those uh, after the lecture. Um, The event is recorded and uh, you may want to listen to it again um, on podcast and um, it will be available online. I'd like to welcome Professor Ahmed uh, and to to speak to us for uh, 30 to 40 minutes and the session will be followed by a question and answer session.
1: So thank you so much Professor Rashid for that very gracious introduction and thank you all for braving the rain and storm to be here. so what I'm going to try and do this evening is give you just a quick sketch, an overview of the broad themes and questions that I explore in the book. Um, the question with which I began was in fact critical to shaping its gen- the book's general trajectory. And that question was quite simply, why were women wearing the hijab or the headscarf in America? And I sometimes call it the veil, but that's what I mean I'm talking about the headscarf. By the way, is the sound okay? Can you hear me okay? No. Is it too soft or too loud, or what is it? So wave to me. Don't let me talk. Ramble on if you can't hear what I'm saying. (laughs) Stand up and say something. So it might seem that it's quite a question that naturally occurs to a feminist, particularly someone who's worked for years on women in Islam, as I have. Um, And certainly feminist... uh, Questions, worries about the veil's meaning, about reinscribing either gender difference and gender hierarchy were among my concerns when I began. Um, but, but that's not the only reason that the veil was intriguing to me. In fact, there were other more compelling reasons um, w- that, that, and that raised questions essentially by virtue of my own memories, having grown up in Egypt. Uh, And in fact, those memories shape the very specific questions, and therefore they shape the broad trajectory of the book, questions that I was trying to answer. Can you hear me okay now? Okay. Um, So it's important that I give you a sense of what these were, these key questions, and I think the quickest way that I can do so is to just read you a couple of pages from the introduction. So this is how it begins. I recall a particular evening a few months after I moved to Cambridge as one of those moments, this is Cambridge Cambridge's America, as one of those moments that was uh, the genesis of this book. After an early dinner with a friend who was visiting from the Arab world, a well-known feminist of Muslim background whom I will call Aisha, we were taking a leisurely stroll back to her hotel. Rounding a corner, we came to a spontaneous halt at the sight of a crowd gathered on the Cambridge Common, Uh, evidently enjoying a private event or gathering. What was arresting was that the women were all in hijab, uh, the the veil as I said or head covering. This was in the late 1990s when the hijab was much less common uh, than it is today in America and I think in Europe too. Seeing a public gathering of 40 or 50 people among whom all the women were in hijab was still exceedingly rare. In fact, this may have been the very first time I'd seen such a gathering in Cambridge. To them, said Aisha, as we stood observing the scene, we are the enemy. That's how they see us, all of us, people like us, feminists, progressives, that's just how it is. She spoke ruminatively, at once uh, 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 as if resuming a conversation which, in fact, on where she was. I understood at once, of course, whom she meant by them, Muslims who wore or required the wearing of hijab. We can't ignore that, she continued, or simply pretend it isn't so. And anyway, they are our enemies. They threaten us, ban our books, or try to oppose everything we stand for. That's just how it is. It was one of those lovely long summer evenings, the perfect sliver of, of, of a moon in the deep sky, The Islamic calendar being a lunar one, I wondered for a moment whether the group had gathered in connection with a significant Muslim feast. But I I couldn't think of anything, nor could Aisha. In the Muslim-majority countries in which we had both grown up, one didn't have to make a special effort to know where we were exactly in the Islamic calendar, since its significant dates and feast days were ordinarily marked and celebrated by the broader society. But here we lived our lives by other times and other calendars, and special dates and feasts typically slipped by unremarked and unremembered. Even discovering when Ramadan was in those pre-internet days required special effort and research. Today, astonishingly to some of us, the Empire State Building in New York is lit green to mark Ramadan. And now, said Aisha, we are, as we resumed our walk, the twilight closing in, our own friends defend them. And what's worse, she went on, as we were saying, their right to do so. That's what they have to do in this country, defend minorities, defend people's right to be different. That's why we love their societies. That's why we want to be like them. So I'm going to skip a couple of paragraphs and read a couple more then. So many Americans and Europeans in the 1990s and today assume that some Muslim women wear hijab simply because they are observant Muslims. Wearing hijab, they assume, is just what devout um, observant Muslims do. But for Aisha and myself, the hijab, the hijab's presence meant not just piety, for we both knew many women in our home societies who were deeply devout yet never wore hijab, rather to us, it plainly signaled the presence of Islamism, a particular and very political form of Islam that had been gaining ground in Muslim societies since the Islamic resurgence of the 1970s, a resurgence significantly fueled by the activities of the Muslim Brotherhood. Thus, for us, the hijab had meanings that it did not have for most Americans and even perhaps for many among the yen- younger generations of Muslims in our home societies essentially because of the history we had ourselves witnessed and lived. This was history that we knew viscerally in our memory and in the pulse of our being. For myself, for example, having grown up in Cairo in the 1940s, the hijab that I was seeing now in America in its looks and style powerfully evoked the hijab I recall seeing in childhood worn by the women of the Muslim Brotherhood and only by the women of the Muslim Brotherhood. It was a different kind of hijab from the traditional sources that one might occasionally see in those days, in the 50s and 60s, in the streets of Cairo. So so as you see then, the questions that were automatically there for me in response to seeing the hijab in America did not spring primarily from feminist concerns, but rather from concerns over political issues. And most particularly, since the hijab, to my eyes, was the signature emblem of the Muslim Brotherhood and other Islamist groups, my question was, did the hijab's presence mean that such groups had somehow gained a foothold in the West? And was their particular understanding of Islam now gaining power here too? There was another and no less troubling question implicit here also. Through the 1980s and 90s I would watched from afar as Cairo and other cities in my home country had been transformed from places where scarcely anyone wore hijab, other than a tiny minority of women of the Muslim Brotherhood, into places where the majority of women now wore it. These same decades had also been marked in Egypt by rising levels of violence and intellectual repression. In 1992, Farag Foda, a well-known journalist and critic of Islamism, was shot. Nasr Hamada Abu Zaid, a professor at Cairo University, was brought to trial on grounds of apostasy and had to flee the country. Soon after, Nagib Mahfouz, the Egyptian novelist and Nobel laureate whose works had been appearing for decades in Egypt, was stabbed by an Islamist on the grounds that his books were blasphemous. Such events seemed a shocking measure of the country's descent into intolerance. To me, at the time that I noticed the hijab trend in America, all of this was connected with the spread of Islamism and hijab. So naturally, another question that was inevitably present for me was, was Islamic violence now taking root and spreading in the West? So these are the questions informing my my quest to understand. So I soon discovered that my instinctive reading of the Cambridge scene that my instinctive reading of the Cambridge scene had in fact been correct in some ways what I was witnessing emerge in America was in fact on a direct continuum of the Islamist movement that had emerged in Egypt and elsewhere the Brotherhood and other such organizations had in fact played a key role in founding many of America's most prominent Muslim institutions and Islamism was gaining ground there While most immigrants were not Islamists, those who were quickly set about founding mosques and other institutions. Many immigrants who grew up, as I did, without veils sent their children to Islamic Sunday schools where they imbibed the Islamist outlook, including the hijab. Islamism was also influential not only among immigrants, but also among African-American Muslims who make up about 35% of American Muslims. Veiled women are, of course, the most visible Muslims in the larger society. The fact is, though, that Islamist-influenced people make up no more than around 30 or 40% of American Muslims. This is also roughly the percentage of women who veil as opposed to those who do not. This means, obviously, that the majority of Muslim Americans um, uh, do not wear the veil, whether because they are secular or because they see it, as I did, as an emblem (coughs) not of Islam but of Islamism. My initial findings as to the importance of Islamists in founding the major Islamic American uh, organizations in themselves opened up a host of new questions in relation now to two different but intertwined spheres of investigation. The first of these was in relation to the Middle East and specifically Egypt, which, home of the Muslim Brotherhood, had been the cradle, as it were, of the Islamic resurgence. To understand what was happening in America, I obviously needed to understand what exactly it was, in fact, that had spread from the Middle East to America. And clearly, too, it was going to be essential to understand what these movements, the brotherhood, the resurgence, meant in relation to women specifically. How did Islamist le- the Islamist leadership think about women, and what was the nature of women involvement in these movements? The Muslim Brotherhood is, of course, a huge organisation with many branches all over the world with their own specific histories and with a history that goes back over 80 years in Egypt alone. Studying this organisation in any comprehensive way would obviously be a vast and many-volumed undertaking. My own focus in the book is always specifically on, on ways in which their views on policies intersect with issues of women and of the hijab. So anyway, I ask how and why women had been drawn to the brotherhood and to Islamism, and what their reasons and motivations had been in participating in the Islamic resurgence. How and why had women been persuaded, for instance, women who'd grown up, as I had, believing the the veil to be irrelevant to Islamic piety, to, after all, take on wearing it? By what process exactly was it that Egypt had gone from being a country of a majority unveiled women to a majority veiled. How, practically speaking, had this extraordinary revolution in dress been accomplished? Among my key findings here was the fact that women had themselves been essential as activists and foot soldiers working in the cause of Islamism and also of promoting the hijab. One very prominent such woman, for example, was Zinab al-Ghazali. Al-Ghazali, described as the unsung mother of the Muslim Brotherhood, was a powerful and forceful activist who played a key role in keeping the organization going after the death of its founder, Hassan al-Banna, in 1949. In addition, with the Islamic resurgence of the 1970s, women were distinctly active in significant numbers in the Islamist cause. The Brotherhood and other Islamists generally were well known for the work they did in providing assistance to people in need, medical treatment, food, shelter, education. Members of these organizations doctors, school teachers, people of whatever profession volunteered their work in the cause of improving society and supporting Islamist goals. Quite often, in following the news, it's clearly noticeable that in times of disaster, earthquakes, fire, flood, it is typically members of these Islamist groups who are the first to arrive to offer help, not some government office. This activist work in the service of those in need, of course, serves very well to advertise the genuineness of Islamist commitments to working to improve society. In stark contrast, in the eyes of many in Muslim-majority societies, to the ruling classes and their associates, who are widely seen as both corrupt and as dominated by greed and self-interest. These Islamist ideas and the accompanying activism attracted many people to their cause, women as well as men. And women as well as men have have, have now participated in this work, donating their services to the needy to improve the society, as well as to serve the cause of Islamism. The cause, that is, of this politically engaged and activist form of Islam. Let me take a moment here to define the sense in which I'm using the term Islamism, and in fact I use it in a way that's commonly used now in the scholarship. I mean by it specifically that type of politically engaged and activist Islam which emerged in the Middle East, particularly with the Islamic resurgence of the mid-1970s, and which spreading across the Middle East, soon after spread also across the world, including obviously to the West. This resurgence itself, I should note, is often referred to in Arabic as al-Sahwa al the Islamic awakening, or simply as al-Sahwa, the awakening. According to the experts, a couple, at least one of whom is sitting in this audience, uh, who study militant Islamic extremism, extremists make up no more than about 2% of the broad band of activists politically engaged form of Islam, which we today call Islamism. The mainstream majority is overwhelmingly made up of participants who are committed to advancing their cause non-violently. They're committed, that is, to working to bring about greater social justice in society, as they understand this, and also to bring about the increasing Islamization of society. Goals that mainstream Islamists are dedicating to realising through peaceful, gradualist means are not, distinctly not those of violence. Including with the, included within this mainstream branch is the mainstream branch of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, which the students of this organization have noted renounced violence in the 1970s, and so far has abided by that position. So in any case, understanding what Islamism means for women in the Egyptian context. OK in, in the Egyptian context and how veiling spread represents one set of questions that I explore. Among other things, I learned that there were many ways in which adopting the hijab was sometimes positively advantageous to women in the Egyptian context. Joining Islamist groups and changing dress, for example, sometimes empowered women in relation to their parents. It also expanded job and marriage opportunities through expanding women's social networks. In addition, since the veil advertised women's commitment to conservative sexual morals, wearing it paradoxically increased women's ability to, to move freely in public space, allowing them, for example, to take jobs in offices shared with men, situations that would otherwise be socially compromising. Probably my most unexpected finding was in relation to my second area of investigation, Having followed out in part how Islamism and the veil had spread from the Middle East to the West, I now go on to follow out how they were evolving in the West now that they had taken root here. My assumption about the veil's patriarchal meanings began to unravel with the very first interviews I conducted with young women who wore it. One explained to me that she didn't believe that the hijab was religiously required and that she wore it as a way of raising people's consciousness about the sexist messages of our society about women's bodies and dress, such as the pressures to unhealthy thinness, for example. This idea vividly reminded me of the feminist so-called bra-burning days in America when some women refused even to shave their legs, among other things, in protest against sexist dress. Another young woman said that she wore hijab for the same reason that one of her Jewish friends wore a yarmulke, This was religiously required dress that made visible the presence of a religious minority who were entitled, like all citizens, to justice and equality. For many others, wearing hijab was a way of affirming pride in Muslim identity in the face of prejudice and a way of rejecting negative stereotypes, like the afros that flourished in the 1960s among African-Americans. My interviewees, as well as most of the other women whose words I studied, studied were American-born Muslims or had come to America as children. Some were American by long heritage, African-Americans, for example. Others were the children of the wave of Muslims who arrived in America in the early 1960s as immigrants or students, among them, most famously, of course, Barack Hussein Obama's father, they are mostly young in the 30s, 20s and 30s with new generations coming up behind them. Raised in the Islamist activist tradition of commitment to social service and at the same time shaped and schooled by American institutions, these new generations commonly experience their dual heritage as intrinsically and indivisibly part of who they are. Many also find the two heritages to be ethically mutually reinforcing. As a graduate, hub, as a graduating Harvard student, Zeyd Yassin put it in a speech a few years ago, both the Quran and the American Constitution commanded him, quote, to stand up for the protection of life and liberty, to serve the poor and the weak, to celebrate the diversity of humankind. The ways in which both Islamist and American ideals, including American ideals of gender justice, seamlessly interweave in the lives of many of these younger generations is present in both sexes, but with regard to gender, it is significantly more pronounced among women. For this has been a truly remarkable decade as regards women's activism. Perhaps the post 9-11 atmosphere in the West which led to intense scrutiny and criticism of, is of Islam, including <coughs> with regard to women, spurred Muslim Americans into this corrective activism. At any rate, in this first decade of the 21st century, women have taken on positions of leadership in major Muslim organizations, where Ingrid Mattson, for example, was twice elected president of the Islamic Society of North America, or ISNA, which is the largest society and most influential in North America, Such female leadership is unprecedented in the home countries, even Zina Bel-Ghazali, vital as she was to the brotherhood, never formally presided over an organization which included men. Muslim-American women forming part of this Islamist current have also been active in working against domestic violence, in claiming equal space for women in mosques, even in claiming the right to religious leadership. Some are even active in fighting for gay and lesbian rights. Among these are members of Al-Fatihah, a gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender organization founded in the 1990s. In addition, a number of them are at work reinterpreting key religious texts, including the Quran. A new translation of the Quran, for example, published in 2006 by the American Muslim Lalla Bakhtiar, offers an interpretation of one of its key verses on women that differs radically from standard interpretations of this verse. Many of these women, although not all, wear hijab. Clearly, here in the West, where women are free to wear what they want, the veil can have a multiplicity of meanings. These are typically a far cry from the old notions of the veil with which I grew up, and profoundly different from the veil's ancient patriarchal meanings, meanings which are still in force in some countries. Here in the West, embedded in the context of democracy, pluralism, and a commitment to gender justice, Women's hijabs can have meanings that hijabs obviously never had before the 19th century, in the 19th century, I mean, and meanings such as calling for gender justice that they cannot possibly have today in countries which don't even subscribe to the idea of the equality of women. Interestingly, though, the issue of hijab and whether it's religiously required or not is also now, along with other key religious texts, coming under scrutiny among women who grew up wearing hijab. Some are busily rereading old texts on the hijab and concluding that it's irrelevant to Islamic piety. They cast it off even as they remain deeply committed Muslims. It is too soon to tell whether this development emerging in the West, in particular among intellectual women who once wore hijab, will gather force and become in due course a new 21st century unveiling movement, a movement that repeats albeit in completely new ways, the unveiling movement which swept across the Middle East in the first half of the 20th century. Still, in a time when when a number of countries have tried banning the hijab, and when typically such rules have backfired, it is worth noting that in America, where there are no such bans, a new movement may be quietly underway, a movement led this time by committed Muslim women who once wore hijab, and who often after much study have decided that it's not necessary to wear it. I've already referred to Muslim women's engaged activism in relation to Islam and women's issues and questioning and revisiting texts on the hijab is obviously part of this. In addition to observing this very lively, in quotes, feminist activism among Islamist influenced Muslim women, it's clear that this younger generation of Muslims are typically those who are most active and in Islamist influence in relation to issues of equality and, and civil rights. By Islamist influence, I mean those American Muslims who are the inheritors of the Islamist understanding of Islam, an, understand, an understanding whose most distinctive features are wearing the hijab, but also activist engagement in the work of political and social uh, activism in the service of improving society attending the annual conventions of organizations such as ISNA as well as following the activities of organizations such as CARE which like ISNA has islamist roots i would see that it was muslims of this islamist heritage who were typically most active in a variety of issues of civil rights and generally of social justice on many matters it was they most consistently rather than secular muslims or non-islamist muslims who seem to be on the front lines speaking out on civil rights and on foreign policy issues the annual convention held by isna and other islamist lineage organization often included non islamists as well as muslim speak non sorry non-muslim as well as muslim speakers and some of them, too, like some of the Muslim speakers, were people who were very politically active and, and uh, involved in conti- critiquing the government on various issues of human rights. Consequently, the speakers I heard at ISNA conventions included, among others, Quakers against torture, prominent rabbis, among them Arthur Waskow and Eric Yofi, who spoke out against Islamophobia. And well-known members of the American Democratic Party, among the latter, for example, was Howard Dean, former chair of the Democratic Party, and Jesse Jackson. Jesse Jackson gave it a very passionate speech, urging Muslims not to waver in their stand for civil rights. For, Musl- uh, um, for civil rights for Muslims, a stand he said that they were taking on behalf of all minorities and he described how in, 19, in the 1960s, early 60s, he had himself been jailed for trying to use a public library. Marcy Kaptura, a Democrat and congressman for Ohio, similarly uh, urged Muslims to stand firm in their quest for equal rights. As an American of Polish descent, she said, she stood by them as well and was well aware that every generation must win liberty anew. Howard Dean similarly said, Quote, there was nothing more American and nothing more patriotic than speaking out. All this was, of course, for me, in a way, hugely ironic. I was arriving at a conclusion which essentially com- completely reversed my expectations. As I said, I began my research because I feared the presence of the hijab was sign of the growing influence in America of a fundamentalist form of Islam that was probably incompatible, and also even possibly deeply hostile to the American values of democracy, personal freedom and gender equality. Instead, here I was attending sessions listening to the interweave of American voices, Muslim and non-Muslim, Christian, Jewish, atheists, voices which were blending in a shared vision of America and of the kind of society America should be, and that citizens should work together for. It was these Muslims Muslims of Islamist heritage, after all, who in particular were participating in the American activist tradition of struggle in the cause of justice and social change. The very tradition that arguably is the signature tradition of America, a tradition rooted in the idea of America as always a work in progress, a society always striving forward towards an ever fuller realization of the goal of justice for all, a goal to be striven for by its activist citizens in struggle after struggle through abolition, women's suffrage, workers' rights, civil rights, women's rights, gay rights. This then was the final irony. It was they, Muslims of Islamist heritage, and not us, the seculars, and the non-Islamist Muslims, who were now in the forefront of the struggle for equal rights, including in relation to Islam and gender. So this is the broad outline of the themes and some of my uh, suggestion of my conclusion. There's just one uh, other area that I should mention which I uh, also explore in the book and this is the investigation of the very ground and territory and framing ideas shaping the very subject of women women in Islam in the West today. As I mentioned earlier, Muslim Americans had quite possibly been spurned into activism on women's issues as a result in part of the intense scrutiny and criticism of Islam in the post 9-11 era, including in relation to women's issues. And it's certainly the case that today, and since 9-11, the subject of women in Islam, which is always also implicitly the subject of the oppression of women in Islam, has taken on extraordinary prominence in the West. It's a subject that often now figures in the media and in political discourse, particularly on the right. I explore this territory and the new, or rather resuscitated, political uses of the subject of women, Islam, and the West in a chapter I call, After 9-11, The Veil, vale, the Burqa, and the Clamor of War. This last decade has been, obviously, a tremendously eventful and turbulent decade, a decade inaugurated by an act of violence committed in the name of Islam against America, followed by wars in Afghanistan and Iraq two Muslim-majority countries, accompanied by stressful conditions on the home front also in relation to Muslims, whether in the US or Europe. These are clearly unprecedented times in modern history as regards relations between Islam and the West, times when, as the rhetoric of Bernard Lewis and his disciple Samuel Huntington would have it, a clash of civilizations seems to be altogether too real and evident. So I follow out in this chapter both actual events and the dominant rhetoric in relation to Islam and specifically Muslim women, tracing, for example, the impact of rising levels of Islamophobia on women's lives in America alongside the re-emergence of the rhetoric of the oppression of women in Islam and the distinctly political uses that such rhetoric, rhetoric is being put to. It was, in fact, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 that the theme of women in Islam first erupted into public political discourse, and it was introduced as a subject of political weight at the very highest levels of government. On November 17, 2001, First Lady Laura Bush gave a radio address in which she spoke of women's oppression in Afghanistan as a matter of national import. Quote, civilized people throughout the world, she said, are speaking out in horror, not only because our hearts break for the women and children of Afghanistan, but also because in Afghanistan we see the world the terrorists would like to impose on the rest of us. The fight against terrorism is also a fight for the rights and dignity of women. Two days later, Sherry Blair, wife of course of British Prime Minister, Tony Blair issued a similar statement. Taking their cue from the First Ladies, the media now portrayed the war in Afghanistan as a righteous war by virtue of our concern to save the women. As the British journalist Polly Toynbee put it, the burqa became the battle flag and shorthand moral justification for the war in Afghanistan. Through those months, the media filled with images of burqas embedded in narratives that were loaded with the notion of Islam's purportedly ageless and unchanging oppression of women. Of course, invoking the theme of the oppression of women in the name of civilization is an old ploy used many times in the past by European imperial powers. This was rhetoric that was often invoked with regard to women in whatever regions their empires took them to, to justify war and domination. It was with respect to precisely this rhetoric that Gayatri Spivak, back in the 1980s, coined the now famous phrase of white men saving brown women from brown men. Astoundingly, to those of us familiar with this history, here it was again, this old ploy, resuscitated, dusted off, and being replayed now all over again. And even more astonishingly, indeed shockingly, it was apparently working. It was entirely commonplace to hear now that we were in Afghanistan in Afghanistan to save the women from the atrocities of the Taliban, atrocities somehow understood to be too to be implicitly those essentially of Islam. For the subject of women in Islam, in the way it is typically figures today in our media, is almost always implicitly about the oppression of women in Islam. And the theme of the oppression of women in Islam, in turn, is almost always to code for contempt for Islam, and in p- particular for the men of Islam. And consequently, the subject is code altogether then for the, and justification for policies, policies targeting Muslims and even for wars in Muslim-majority countries. As I examine the interweave of actual events affecting Muslim women in the West alongside the rhetoric On the subject of Muslim women, I reflect also on a number of books which have appeared in these years by women of Muslim background, books which in many ways essentially confirm the general thesis of Islam's purportedly unique and appalling oppression of women. A number of such works became bestsellers and at the same time they provoked fierce criticism from academics. Uh, people who criticized them in particular on the grounds that under the guise of eliciting sympathy for Muslim women, they in fact mobilized feelings of hostility towards Islam and Muslim men, feelings then which, which as it were, manufactured consent in support of wars in Muslim-majority countries or of policies, policies targeting Muslims on the home front. As such, as such scholars pointed out, it was a remarkable and arresting fact that books by Muslim women recounting their personal oppression under Islam were soaring in popularity in the very period when wars we were pursuing in Iraq and Afghanistan were in fact costing mostly Muslim women and their children their survival and their very lives. Remarkably, as such critics pointed out, in the period in which the general public was apparently deeply empathizing, judging by the best-selling books, with Muslim women oppressed by Islam, they were simultaneously, apparently also, not hugely perturbed or, or outraged at the reality of the destruction of women's lives and children's lives in, the, in our pursuit of war. So my general conclusion then on this topic of women in Islam and specifically of the oppression of women in Islam is that it is essentially a relic, the very subject is a relic of imperial times It's a rhetorical device which we inherited from empire and which it is time we cast aside. It would surely be absurd and in fact inconceivable that anyone would consider it reasonable today to write or speak about the oppression of women in Christianity by which they sweepingly meant whatever injustices and oppressions were suffered by uh, Christian women were suffering in say Nigeria, India, Argentina, Russia, and Italy. Yet this is routinely how the oppression of women in Islam is commonly evoked today in popular discourse. Whereas, in fact, injustices and oppressions Muslim women suffer vary enormously depending on where they happen to live. The injustice and oppression experienced by Muslim women living in Saudi Arabia, Iran, Indonesia, Turkey, France, and Germany very enormously, and it would be nearly meaningless to lump them together and discuss them as all part of some continuous Islamic injustice. In saying that it's time we set aside that old imperial rhetorical device about the oppression of women in Islam, I'm by no means arguing, I should make clear that I believe that particular interpretations of Islam do not include numerous beliefs, attitudes, and laws that are indeed appallingly unjust to women. On the contrary, I believe that there are too many examples of precisely such practices, customs and laws enacted in the name of Islam that are entirely intolerable in their views and treatment of women. But the way forward in this domain is not, I think, through wholesale dismissal and denigration of everything Islamic, but rather through directly confronting, challenging, and addressing each custom, law, practice, one by one, piece by piece, wherever it is occurring. So. In any case, uh, this lays out the major themes of my book uh, and I'm happy to open to questions.
0: thank you professor ahmed for a thought provoking uh, lecture uh, a dense summary that would make uh, quite a lot of us rethink many assumptions and i'm th- i'm sure uh, the veil is just one item really in in a series of historical social political contexts um, for so long um, the veil had assumed multiple meanings it meant different meanings to different people but I think what we struggle with as social scientists since the Enlightenment, I think, is to take religion and piety as an independent variable. We always try to assume that there is another motivation behind being religious. And I think there is a new generation of uh, scholars now who are reconsidering that paradigm and taking religion seriously as an an independent variable that may actually explain people's behavior. But at the same time, when we're talking about Islam and women, as you said, there is that package, that imperial history, that uh, also mirrors some of the uh, uh, current events that are taking place across the globe. Um, in a way uh, I think we we have to always remember that the the body is the first symbol you work on your body to give meaning as Mary Douglas said Mm -hmm. and we live in in a world where the body assumes multiple meanings and there is quite a lot of consumption industry around the body (laughs) and the veil may not be entirely understood as simply a reflection of activism it can actually be also a reflection of being part of a consumer culture where their body is fetishized. Uh, So I will stop here and allow the audience to ask questions. I propose that we group the questions uh, into three um, and please uh, wait until the microphone arrives at your end and uh, introduce yourself, um, your name and affiliation and please try to be brief because I'm sure there are lots of questions and I can see how the audience is eager to ask these questions. Uh, let's start with the back. Yes,
2: please. Uh, Do I need to stand up? Yes,
0: we've got to coordinate because we've got quite a lot of people uh, okay. upstairs as well. Okay. So please Oops. be brief and um, introduce yourself.
2: Yeah. Um, so my name's Anita Nair. I blog on things around gender and Islam. Um, and have worked in a government capacity around Muslim women, um, I guess my interest is uh, from you i 'd like to know your thoughts around how we approach scholarship on the veil in contemporary society between Should the West speak and the louder, please. sorry yeah. um, i 'd be quite interested in your thoughts on how we access scholarship on the veil in the west and the middle east, so the how you see the sort of way we, but we politically and intellectually, uh, between the two regions approach um, um, scholarship, which is obviously historically very complex around the veil? Um, so it's quite an open question. Okay.
0: Yes, we take another question uh, in the front, and then we move up. Thank you.
3: So. Mm, name is Eric Chavez Chavez from Imperial College.
1: Where, where are you? Where are we? I can't Yeah, is that okay? Imperial Here. College. Yeah.
3: Um, Chavez. Yeah. Not from Venezuela. Mexico. <laughs> um, you, uh, France. France is the the, the, um, the country of religion wars, and France is probably the country that mo- is most uh, outspoken about imposing secular laws. Now, another thing about France, uh, compared to England or US, France has 6.5% of the marriages that are uh, inter-religious, North African with uh, root French. Whereas in the UK, it is 2%. Um, Now, different numbers. Uh, I'll be fast, sorry. Um, Aren't you afraid that by using religion as a vehicle To promote social rights, Uh, you might promote diversity, religious diversity, but this could impinge on uh, individual rights.
0: Okay. Uh, Another question from the upper floor. Uh, yes.
2: Okay. Um, hi, my name is Ella Fitzsimmons. I'm a PhD student at wait, King's wait, wait. College. Well. I'm up here. <laughs> hi. <laughs> um, I had two questions actually for Professor Ahmed. The first was, do you think we can talk about the ter- or use the term Islamophobia? Um, do you think that's a useful term um, to describe the reactions uh, given to Muslims in the West um, post 9/11 and or before that? And two, um, you know, what my research is about is a lot um, about comparing Jewish women's firmware and Muslim women's um, religious clothing. And I was wondering if you have any ideas or speculations why Muslim and Jewish women who both don religious clothing um, are um, perceived so differently in the West. Thank you.
1: Wonderful question. Well, you know, all your questions are one the trouble is maybe I'm not sure that I will remember <laughs> all the questions, no, I've tried to draw them, so okay, sorry. so you can help remind me. But the, I think the whole issue of religious clothing is a subject that needs to be studied because it's, it's not only Jews and Muslims, you know, Christians also. And in France, they've been discriminated against, nuns have been hugely discriminated against. So, uh, you know, I think the, the question of what what clothing means, And what religious closing mean? I mean, you know, when this burqa ban happened in France, uh, I have I have a good friend uh, who used to be a nun, and she told me she described to me how. When, they were, when she was a nun and when they took uh, ma- uh, communion they were instructed by their superiors to pull the, their veils forward because it enhanced the sense of spirituality and I've heard Muslim women give that account of why they want to wear a burqa so I think the whole connection of clothing and spirituality but clothing across religions uh, and actually across secular people because they wear clothes for their reasons too so it's, it's I mean the assumption is that Those of us who are conforming to Western normality uh, are perfectly okay and the rest have to explain their dress. And I think that's actually completely fallacious. Uh, And that's one of the things that I learned in the course of, it's absurd to go around asking women why they wear hijabs. I might as well ask people, why do you wear jeans? You know, what's what's the relevance of that? So I think all of this needs to be opened up. The second question was about France.
0: Uh, I think. Yes. Uh, we're going backward. <laughs> um, yes. France um, and uh, using religion to gain rights uh, may backfire. Uh, it would lead to diversity or also to conservatism or something like this. Is that uh, right, <laughs> or Yes. So, uh,
1: well, I think you're actually right. I mean, so what I'm describing about people using religion, it isn't that I recommend that people <laughs> do this. It, it is, it is, it's what's happening. It's what happened, and it in fact happened not only in Western societies. I mean, the example I followed out in particular was Egypt in Muslim majority society. In, in Turkey too, those who wear hijab were a minority. Started out as a minority as a protest, in part, against the the habits and 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 the prejudice of the of the uh, secular dominant classes. So, so I think it's a. It, it started as a strategy by which a minority made known their dissent. I, I don't rec- necessarily recommend it. I think you're right. There are dangers about losing individual rights. But, you know, I, I don't know. There's, I mean, it's the story of the uh, African-American movement. It's the story of women's movement. It's the story of other groups, too, who've grouped and got through that, got rights. Um, so I think you're, uh, you're right, but it it's has all these other complexities.
0: And the first question was on uh, scholarship and how we study this yeah. phenomena. I
1: think you, you know very it's a very interesting question again now I mean so what are the two ways of studying the hijab I mean as far as I'm aware of when you say the Middle Eastern way it's really a religious it's a way which is seeking to affirm on the whole of Islam- uh, hijab or else it's a, it's a form of western Academic work. I mean, I can think of a couple of studies of the hijab, which were done in the spirit of Western academic work, and no, and many, many books written by, uh, Islamically committed people, which affirm the hijab. So I don't know what. So what? What other scholarship is that one could ask about? Yeah. Can we
0: take more questions? Yes, please. Uh, yeah, here, microphone.
2: Abbas Azad, LSE alumnus. Are you not concerned that by stripping the hijab of its theological significance, as you do, and by ascribing it a political significance, as you do, that you're giving succor to the clash of civilizations narrative?
1: To the what?
2: To the clash of civilizations narrative.
0: Okay. um, Take another question from the gentleman on the left.
2: Hi. uh, My name is Ben. I I did a master's degree at Harvard in Middle Eastern Studies. In Professor Al-Rashid's introduction, she mentioned that in one of your earlier books you had um, explored the influence of class
0: on um, the the veil and women's dress codes, and I I mean... Influence of what? Class,
2: social class, class. Um, and I know, for example, in the medieval era, um, often it was upper-class women who were expected to veil, and lower-class women weren't expected to, so I wondered um, if you could talk a little bit about how class... Um, uh, b- b- whether it's still a determinant of um, women's uh, dress codes in America and in the Middle East, and if you know how it's changed historically, how and why it's changed.
0: Okay, thank you. We've got a question? in The front.
2: My name is Sonia. I'm a master's student at Institute of Smiley Studies and Institute of Education. Um, my question is that you gave multiple different reasons why um, Muslim women chose to wear hijab. What about a lot of incident, certain scholarship reports that um, it's probably a reason why when a lot of rural area women move to urban areas and that could be a reason. What do you think about that? Thank you.
1: Thank you. Well, shall I? Uh, I don't know how to start. Shall I start backwards again? Oh, it's the simplest way. <laughs> <laughs> so the rural areas is one of the reasons advance, and it's it's certainly true. I mean, the, there are multiple reasons of why uh, the hijab having disappeared uh, came back. And by the way, one of the the, the the first chapter of my book is called unveiling. Why did we unveil in the first place? What was all that about? So uh, so I so. Th- that is part of a larger story, uh, but one of the uh, reasons things that people have suggested that it is partly rural migration, and I expect that may be an element in it. There are, but there are multiple sources of why we have gone back to um, class and The class, yes, the class sit- situation. I think, I mean, it would be very interesting. I think that the the uh, the, what has happened, I think, today is that the, ve- the old categories of meaning of the veil have completely been abolished. That something had happened, and I think only happened in the beginning in the 1970s, in which, which liberated women, women. I mean, you know, there's no way in which somebody to, can say to me... Uh, I wear the hijab to challenge gender or I wear it because I'm a minority like a Jewish minority and I want my rights. No way that they could, that that had any meaning whatever pre-1920, pre-even frankly 1950 or even 1960 or even 1970 actually. It was around then and what happened, that's one of the things that I explore. How what happened in the 70s beginning I think in Egypt and probably in Turkey that that the veil ceased to be a culturally defining I mean something defined by culture when I say ceased to be I'm talking about the West it still has that meaning in Saudi Arabia and Iran but in, in places where people are free to give it meanings it ceased to be, it kind of broke loose from its old roots of patriarchy and a whole lot of other things and so all of its old meanings whether of class or of patriarchy have just exploded What its meaning is whatever a woman wants it to mean, including religious meanings. And I think that's probably the toughest question that you asked me. Am I lending succor to the clash of civilizations? Now, you know, there are many levels of of this issue. Um, When I was studying why women wore hijab, I took partly the answers that women who wore hijab gave me. I then I did a very systematic study through anthropological studies, people who had gone to Egypt in the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, gathering information, asking women, why are you wearing hijab? Some of them Egyptians, Egyptian, Egyptian academics, some of them Western academics. And um, so I gathered together the answers they, they gave. Now, interestingly, they do not themselves emphasize that they're wearing it for Sim- they don't usually say, I'm wearing it because Islam requires me to wear it, and that's it. Uh, or because I believe God wants me. They don't give those reasons. Now, that doesn't mean that that's not their chief reason. It could well be. be- but I think one has to take uh, answers given to anthropologists, including to in- ac- inquiring academics such as myself, with a big grain of salt. But this is the pattern that I see in in the answers given for whatever reason because they're intelligently reading what their their interlocutor wants maybe. Uh, but I don't think I'm lending sucker, frankly, no.
0: Right. Uh, I think we've got time for perhaps uh, one or two questions at the most uh, as we have to stop at 7.30. Yes, the lady there and the back. Uh.
4: Yeah, uh, good evening everybody. I'm really happy to attend this uh, lecture and uh, because I consider myself uh, uh, one old friend to Leila and to Madawi. Uh, I am Fouzee Abu Khalid from Saudi Arabia, professor at King Saud University, professor of political sociology, uh, feminism and women. And uh, there is a point that I, b- I would like to bring up um, uh, uh, related to hijab and uh, the difference between veil and hijab. Because in Saudi Arabia, for example, I think uh, uh, wearing a hijab and not veiling, it's a, a liberal position because, it, uh, uh, because there most people are, most women are required to, uh, to, to, veil, to cover their face and to cover their bodies. So really, if we, go to, if, we, if we want to think of uh, semantics of hijab, we will find so many meaning. And one of the, of the meanings, at least to me in Saudi Arabia, because I don't cover my face, and uh, a big number also of uh, educated people, that it, is, uh, it has a liberating notion. So I would like uh, to, to bring up this point. Plus, I, I completely agree that uh, you know, concentrating on veiling uh, and unveiling, especially in the West, I think it's really diverting our attention from the, uh, the massacre that people are uh, are going and the, and the misery people are going uh, as a result of uh, of the American war uh, whether in Afghanistan or. Uh, uh, or in Iraq or in other places. So uh, it's it's really important that you know we we reread uh, uh, these notions and the meaning and what does it mean to be uh, to be veil or unveil and what does it mean to be Muslim and, Mos- and non-Muslim. And I think uh, the the recent revolutions that what we call this. The uh, the spring of uh, of of Arabs at this moment shows us that you know there is nothing really threatening about uh, the Middle East and the Arab uh, uh, youth and uh, because most of these uh, uh, revolutions are really calling for human rights, for uh, uh, civil rights, for equality. Uh, for all these we uh, one, one more question Okay, just I want to bring the attention you. that yeah. we're, 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 we're witnessing new trends that it's trying to, to grow out of the, uh, of the stereotype that the West is putting the youth and the people in Thank you very much Thank you, Dr.
0: Fozia. We have one question, but very briefly, please
2: Hello, um, my name is Meg, and as an American Muslim and an American Muslim convert, um, I thought your lecture was very interesting, thank you very much. I will be quick. Um, My question, because a lot of what you brought up about... Your discoveries are actually not very surprising to me. I was more surprised to hear your assumptions to begin with. (laughs) So, um, my question is how do we break down these barriers, these misconceptions about hijab being a rise of fundamentalism, when in fact, as you found out, it's much more about social and civil activism? Thank you. Well,
1: I guess I want to thank both because I mean I complete. Is Dr. Fazia? You said I think I'm complete with the agreement with everything you said. Thank you for contributing that. It's an important point. They are all important points that you raise, and I think also uh, your question. I think you are probably uh, as well placed to answer it as I am. Uh, I've I've done my bit trying to answer why why this is and to to dismantle uh, false ideas about it. But I think your generation, you and people, young people like you, will will be critical to this process. So thank you for your point.
0: Well, thank you very much. Um, we must thank Dr. Uh, Professor uh, Leila Ahmed for uh, a very rich presentation that. Uh, as I said earlier, would probably change uh, people's views, um, and it is time for these old uh, convictions to change. And I think Mm -hmm. one conclusion what could uh, walk away with is that uh, we women uh, make news, whether we dress or undress. (laughs) We will always make news. And thank you very much. Please join me to thank uh, Professor Ahmed once again. (laughs)